You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, everybody. Oh, you can do better than that. Good morning, everybody. There you go. All right. Welcome to Citizens Church. My name is Mike M. If you're new here, I am one of the home group's ministers. Uh, We're so glad to have you with us. Uh, Go ahead and grab your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, you can grab a a hardback black one um, from the pew in front of you. Um, By way of reminder, this will be our third week in Paul's letter to his friend and his disciple, Titus. My sermon today just has two points. And those two points are coincidentally the title of the message. Declare and demonstrate. So if you're the type to take notes, you can jot those two words down. I'll refer to them quite a bit later. Now before we start into the passage today, let me wish you a happy early Memorial Day. I'd like to share a story from the early 80s when I was a seven, when I was a seven Your old South Korean boy came to fall in love with the United States of America. From the first through the third grade, I lived in the heart of the Midwest, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And across the street from me, um, there was a kid, his name was Teddy, and we became best friends, and we would play with our Star Wars action figures and our Atari 2600s. And uh, he had a train set. We would ride our big wheels all around the neighborhood. A lot of you who are younger have no idea about anything I just said. You can look it up. It's all museum stuff now. (laughs) But by the second grade, we graduated from big wheels, and we both learned how to ride real bikes. And so that was our favorite thing to do, especially in the summertime. So the summer after second grade, we would, he would come over, we'd get on our bikes, and we would ride around the neighborhood And we would ride actually several miles away. There would be days when we would leave in the morning and come back almost at night. Basically, the rule was when when it gets dark, when the streetlights come on, you better come back home. And uh, I looked it up on Google Maps, and, you know, we were riding several miles away. I was seven years old. It's kind of strange to think about, but we didn't think twice about it. It was kind of a normal thing for us back then. One day in the summer, we're riding bikes, and Teddy yells over his shoulder, Hey, Mike, are you thirsty? I'm like, yeah, I'm thirsty. All right, let's go. And he gets off his bike, and he runs over to a house. Now, he had a regular-sized little BMX bike. I was poor, so I had been given a, uh, a full adult-sized bike, even though I was really short uh, as a hand-me-down from one of our generous neighbors. And so I was way up in the air, and I didn't know how to stop yet. And so I just sort of aimed it at a curb and kind of jumped off, tuck and roll into the grass, you know? And so I dust myself off and I walk up to this house with Teddy and he rings the doorbell. The door opens up and there's this nice lady. And she looks down and she goes, how can I help you boys? And Teddy looks up at her and he goes, we're thirsty. (laughs) And she goes, oh, okay. She goes inside, comes back a few moments later. She's got two tall glasses of milk. And we drink the milk. We hand the glasses back, wipe our mouths. Thanks. And we get on our bikes and ride down the street. That happened at least a dozen times that summer, a different house every time. We didn't know any of these people. Sometimes it wasn't milk, it was just water, but other people had lemonade. And the the whole summer, we we were just riding around doing this. 
that summer had a deep impact on me. I didn't know any of these people. These little visits added up. I'll explain why at the end of my sermon. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in Titus chapter 1. If you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 998. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Jamin walked us through the qualifications for elder. These are mature Christians whose character matches their authority. If you remember, Jamin reminded us that even though that passage is, is primarily targeted about how to recognize and raise up elders and pastors, the principles are really for all of us. Christ-like character is God's will for every Christian. It's not just for a select few. But today we're going to be talking about their mirror opposites. Instead of the elders, we're going to be talking about anti-elders, if you will. Our passage today is Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, about false teachers and dangerous church leaders. But before we dive into that text, let me anchor where we're going. Let's take a look at the two verses that are right before and right after. They're like bookends, okay? So let's look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, and we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 1. They'll be up on the screen. Titus 1, 9, he, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders must be able to teach sound doctrine. Now let's look at the verse at the other end, the second bookend, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's that phrase again, sound doctrine. Doctrine. We're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, but let me just give you a preview. The word sound there, the Greek word sound, means healthy or wholesome. It's related to our word hygiene or hygienic, right? It promotes health. In other words, it's the opposite of being infected, festering. It's good, okay? It's clean. These two verses describe what good Christian leaders do. They guard what's in between. Paul starts and ends by telling Titus to declare the truth of the gospel and to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. Teach sound doctrine and exhibit sound living. But why? Why is that so important? That's what today's passage is about. So let's get to work. Titus chapter 1. Verse 10. Keep your Bibles open. We're just going to walk through every verse. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This verse starts with the word for. This tells us the reason why we need healthy church leaders because there's people who are unhealthy in the church. This has been true back then, and this is true today. Do not be surprised by that. False teachers here, it says three things about them. They are insubordinate, they are empty talkers, and they are deceivers. First, insubordinate. Insubordinate means that they're rebellious people. Or another way to put it is they refuse to come underneath authority. If you look at the very first verse of Titus, 
Paul introduces himself a specific way. He says, Paul, a servant of God. Some translations say Paul, a slave of God. In his introduction, Paul immediately places himself in a subservient role under authority, under the authority of God. And then when he describes elders, he says this about them. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it has been taught. Leaders not only place themselves under the authority of God, they also place themselves under the authority of God's word. They are bound and constrained by God's word. And finally, as we'll see in the rest of Titus, godly people place themselves under the authority of God's leaders. The insubordinate refuse to do any or all of these things in some combination. They use God instead of serving God. They stand on their own ideas, on their own word, instead of submitting to the revealed word of God. When their opinion differs with the Bible, they're like, the Bible must be wrong. They refuse to come under the authority of pastors and elders, even trustworthy pastors and elders. Because they crave authority, but they don't recognize it in others. We need to be aware of such people, but we need to be aware of becoming such people. If you know yourself, you know you have this tendency in you as well. I know, I feel it. Next, he tells us that these people are empty talkers and deceivers. Empty talkers means talkers of vanity, talkers of nothing. If we want to use the language, for those of you who are here during the wisdom series, they are hevel talkers. Their words sound nice. Their words sound sweet, but they're like a winter's breath that puffs and disappears. You can't hang your hat on it, much less your life. The dangerous thing about this is you don't know about it until much, much later when your life gets hard. And you'll make the mistake, I got this from Tamarcus, you'll make the mistake of blaming God for the hurt. But they're also deceivers. They lie. They trap people. Anyone who does this is dangerous. Let me give you an example of an empty talking deceiver. Anyone who preaches to you that God never intends Christians to suffer has either never read the Bible or read it and refuses to believe it. Either way, they're disqualified from teaching. The gospel of health and wealth, name it and claim it, the prosperity gospel is empty and deceitful. It is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can read 1 Peter chapter 4 for the antidote to that. What's so bad about that, right? Can't we just agree to disagree? Let's not be divisive. Maybe we can just let them be. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, what does Paul say? They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. All right, so first, no, you can't leave them alone. They must be silenced. Why? Paul says they're teaching what they should not teach. 
And he says they teach for shameful gain. They're not there to serve anyone. They're to be, they want to be served. Okay, but that doesn't really fully answer the question, okay? I want you to pay particular attention to this. Why must they be silenced? Must they be silenced? Okay, what is the thing that motivates Paul? The thing that motivates the Holy Spirit to motivate Paul to write this down. Look at the text. It says they must be silenced. Why? Because they're hurting families. People are being hurt. You see, the main concern isn't that they might embarrass our organization. Because we need to protect our brand. Or that we want our religion to be winning in the marketplace of ideas and take over the map. That's not the main concern. The leaders that focus on those kind of big picture things as their main motives are the very ones that cover up abuse. They cover up for dangerous leaders. They're the ones who say, yeah, that guy, you know, he's got some problems, but you gotta think about it. We, gotta, we don't wanna be embarrassed. We gotta protect the brand. We gotta protect the ministry. We wanna protect our church. This organization is important. We got, we're doing good things. And thinking like that, People like that do not understand what Christian ministry is. Ministry at its heart is protecting and providing for God's people, the people who are made in God's image. False teachers who make false declarations hurt actual people. Whole families are torn apart, taken advantage by greedy people like this. God says, look at my image bearers. They're my priority. So these teachers must be silenced. They must be rebuked sharply. For God's leaders have to have God's heart in God's eyes. Now, I want to make a couple comments on this next kind of confusing verse. It says, uh, one of the Cretans said, Cretans are always liars. You know that part? Is Paul affirming that making ethnic stereotypes is okay? Is he making a blanket racist statement that proves that the Bible is primitive and outdated. These are actual opinions. If you Google this verse, you'll see articles about this. No, Paul is not doing either of these things. He's not. We know that Paul does not actually believe that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Right? Because if that was true, the whole project of raising up godly elders would have been pointless in the first place. Remember that right before this, Paul has just commissioned Titus with finding godly, upright, holy men who are above reproach. From what population? From among the Cretans. All right, so then what is going on here? It's a little weird. What Paul is doing is making a sort of nerdy inside joke to Titus. Let me unpack this. Uh, so, Paul's personal letters that he writes to people that he knows very well tend to be pretty short because they know his theology, they know how he talks and how he thinks, and he doesn't really need to explain it. So he says a lot in just a few, few words. But when he writes to a group of people, when he writes especially to a group of people that he doesn't know very well, he's very careful to explain all of his thoughts, to unpack it step by step by step. That's why the book of Romans is so long and the book of Titus is one page. So let me explain Paul's joke. Now, I want to warn you that uh, explaining a joke is kind of like dissecting a frog, right? You can see how all the parts work, but now it's dead, okay? So, so don't expect the joke to be funny. 
There's a reason why Paul's not known for his humor. Okay, so in the Greek world, there was a famous philosophical puzzle called the liar's paradox that you would teach first-year philosophy students. Okay, it goes something like this. You meet a man, and he says two things to you. He says, I'm always lying. I always lie. And then the second thing is, and that's the truth. And so, like, you figure that out. What, what's, what's actually true, right? So you're like, okay, he always lies. Okay, yeah, that's the truth. So that's a lie. Wait, but that means the first thing was a lie. So he does tell the truth. Wait, but that means he's a lie. And so you just kind of, you know, it's a circular headache, right? It's a meaningless riddle. And it's, it, it demonstrates logical inconsistency. So that's Paul here. He's quoting a Cretan uh, poet who is quoting that. And then, so he says, there's a Cretan poet who said, Cretans are always liars. And then he adds on, and that's true. And so Titus is supposed to get it. I imagine Titus kind of rolling his eyes like, that was bad, right? He's not saying that that's actually true. He's just kind of inserting that in there. But what, he's, what, he's, what he is doing, though, is he's pointing out that Cretan, this Cretan philosopher, because remember, if, the Cret, if a Cretan says Cretans are always liars, then that statement is also a lie, so then they're not liars. So you see how it works? But what he's saying is even the Cretans recognize that something's wrong with them. Right? That's one of the things... You don't need to be a Christian to know that something's deeply wrong with the world. And it's probably us. That's why there's some people like, I don't even like people. I just like dogs, you know, <laughs> right? Because people are the worst, you know? <laughs> that's basically what he's saying. He's like, yeah, no, that's pretty true. We know this because, so he's just agreeing that, that this is a correct diagnosis of the human nature. We, why do we know this? If you read later in, in, uh, um, in Titus, in chapter 3, he talks about himself this way. He talks about Titus this way. He says, we were once foolish, disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We were evil people, right? So he doesn't exempt himself from that. He's not saying, uh, he's not pointing out just the Cretans, but this is, this is how people are. Don't be surprised. This, the work of Christian ministry is really difficult, Okay, so therefore we need correction. I want you to notice one more thing, though. It says they have to be sharply rebuked. But what's the point of the rebuke? What's the outcome of the rebuke? If you think about today's contentious, divisive culture, we would expect something like on YouTube, like Titus destroys the false prophets with facts and figures, you know, whatever that kind of thing. And like Mike drop, he, you know, and like, like we want to see. That's not what's going on here. He says... He, Rebuke them sharply. Why? So that what? They may be sound in the faith. The hope even here is of restoration and redemption. Paul knows more than anyone that no one is beyond redemption, even false teachers, because he himself was a false teacher. No one is, redeem is beyond redemption. No one is beyond restoration, but that redemption requires confession and repentance, which requires conviction of sin. And that's why there needs to be rebuke. Just like Paul was rebuked by Jesus on the Damascus road, why do you kick against the goads? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul was silenced for three days. This happened to him. He's not saying, let's own on those fools. He's not saying that. His, his heart is for forgiveness, for repentance. He knows that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. 
anyone, if it was true for Paul and if it was true for Titus, then it's true for the Cretans. But best of all, it means it's true for you and it's true for me. Let's keep reading verse 14. So that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Here Paul warns Titus about Jewish myths and men's commands. And then later he'll warn Titus about not getting caught up in quarrels and controversies and genealogies. There's a kind of theological knowledge, a kind of theological teaching and a theological study that is not sound. Basically, people, some people can study theology not because they want to behold God and become like God in their character, but in order to deflect from feeling uncomfortable as they behold their own sin and they behold God's holiness. A few ways that can look like in the church today. It could look like over-enthusiasm and try to nail down minute points of theology and being rigidly locked into things like the exact order of the end times or learning everything about the various orders of angels and their functions, getting into arguments about predestination, right? Now, none of these topics are intrinsically wrong. We should study all manner of theology. The problem is not the subject being studied. The problem is the heart of the one doing the studying. That's why Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. There's a way to studying even God and the things of God and to practice religion that leaves your heart unmoved and unchanged, empty and defiled. Instead of life, it produces more death. What is the culmination of this kind of a life? A life of false declarations, a life of false motivations, a life of false study. We come at last to the last verse and point two, demonstrate. Verse 16. The false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I want to spend the rest of my time on this one verse. Note how the false teachers deny God. They deny God by what? Their theology? By their words? Jesus would say, you will know them by their fruits. James would say, I will show you my faith by my works. He would say, faith without works is dead. And what Paul says is these false teachers deny God by their works, by their life. There are those who hurt people by declaring false things about God. And there are those who hurt people by demonstrating false things about God. Some of us here have scars from being taught false things about God. That God can only be happy with you if you live up to every expectation and never let anyone down. That God only helps those who help 
themselves. That even if you cling to Christ and you throw yourself on his mercies, he finds you distasteful. That even if Jesus has to love you, he doesn't have to like you, not the real you. To those who grew up under teaching like that, I am so sorry. That is a false teaching. I want to say something to you. I want to declare something to you, something that Matt Chandler used to say all the time. Believer, listen to me. God loves you now. He's not waiting for you to straighten out your life so that he can start loving you. He doesn't love some future better version of you. He loves you now. And there's another kind of person who's been hurt. Some of us grew up in a a church or in a home that actually declared good doctrine, sound doctrine, that Jesus came to save sinners and God is merciful and gracious and patient with us even when we fail and we run from him. That Christians, likewise, should be gracious and merciful, patient people. And the problem wasn't in what was declared. The problem was that in that church or in that home, those true things that were declared were not demonstrated. You were taught one thing and shown something very different. And it's so confusing. A couple weeks ago, Jamin vulnerably shared a story from his own life about preaching. And I was sitting in the back when I heard that, and it cut me to the heart because I had the exact same story from my own life. A few years ago, my wife and I, my wife Kathy and I were serving at a church plant, and I had preached a sermon on one of my favorite topics, the grace of God. And I studied, and I built it out, and I delivered it, and I got a lot of you know, good feedback and accolades, and we were driving home, and Kathy said, hey, you know, that was a really great sermon. Like, I really worshiped God today. It was really beautiful. You did a great job. I said, thank you. And she said, you know, I love hearing about the grace of God. It was really wonderful, but could you show me a little of that grace? It sounds really nice. I remember that. When, when Jamin shared his story, it, I, was so, I was cut to the heart. My favorite topic, the thing I just, I, I studied and I prepared and I, I poured myself into it and I was just saying it with my mouth and I was denying it with my life to the person that I love the most. This is something that all of us struggle with. We will not get it perfectly in this life. We are not Jesus. But it's so important that we don't send a confusing message. Let me take us back to the story that I shared at the beginning about seven-year-old Mike riding bikes with his friend, accepting beverages from strangers at their house. (laughs) Don't let your kids do that. That was essentially like leave it to Beaverland. That doesn't exist. Okay. So the, re- the reason why that summer had such a huge effect on me is that for the past two years, in first grade and second grade at Randolph Elementary School, we had been learning about American history, among other things. I learned the story of George Washington and the cherry tree, that Americans prize integrity and honesty. Ben Franklin and the kite, that Americans are inventive and clever. Abe Lincoln and the log cabin, how Americans work hard and they're generous to the poor. 
I learned, my, my favorite thing, though, is I learned about the Statue of Liberty. And we learned and was read to us a poem that is engraved and mounted on the pedestal. I invite you to go look it up later. And this, the poem on the pedestal is about how America welcomes immigrants like me. What had been declared to me was that America was a land of freedom and safety, home to decent, kind, trustworthy people who are welcoming, generous, and hospitable, even to immigrants like me. And that summer, everything that I heard declared at school was demonstrated again and again and again as decent, kind, trustworthy people welcomed me and were generous and were hospitable. I didn't know any of these people. I came to believe what I had been taught at school, not because they told me to, but because I'd seen it. I'd tasted it and seen it for myself. What was declared was also demonstrated to me. But let me ask you this. What if that second component had been missing? What if I'd just been told how wonderful America is and how kind Americans are, and when I asked someone for help, they had hurt me, rejected me, proved those ideals wrong. This same thing is true for the church. We must declare the truth of the gospel, yes, but we must also demonstrate the truth of the gospel. We declare the grace and the mercy and the kindness of Jesus, yes, but we have to demonstrate the grace and the mercy and the kindness of Jesus, or it's just words. But why does it have to be this way? The rest of the letter to Titus is about the why and the how. But I'll just give you a quick preview. Paul will make this argument at least twice. The reason why we do this as God's people is that this is how God himself operates. And as we behold his character, we become like him. You remember how Paul said that the false teachers profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, that they're detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work? Remember that? I want you to imagine, what is the opposite of that verse? Let's flip each one of those over. Who is it that instead of being detestable was always praiseworthy? Instead of being disobedient was always obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Instead of being unfit for any good work, accomplished every good work, fulfilling the law, the whole law for us. Who did not come to harm families, but to establish them and even expand them. Who came not for shameful gain, but at the cost of his own life. You see, declare and demonstrate is not just the theme of Titus or my sermon. What is at stake here is the foundation of the entire Christian faith. Because it is Jesus Christ who made the boldest and the most outrageous declarations of all time. 
He declared that he was the son of God, that he was equal to God, that he was the author of life. He declared that he had the power to forgive sins. He declared that he was a good shepherd who came to lay his life down for a sheep, that he had the authority to lay it down and pick it up again. What if, what, what if those are just pretty words? Paul asks that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't have time to read the whole section. You could do that later. I suggest you do. It's beautiful. And the songs we're singing today are based on 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read you three verses from there. 14, 17, and 19. Paul says this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's hevel. And your faith is in vain. Your faith is hevel. It's nothing. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. It's useless. And you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if it's just a story to get you through the night, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We are not a noble people. We are a pathetic people. This is not beautiful. It's all a lie. If Christ had only spoken pretty words, but did not demonstrate his power over death and the grave, then our God would be a liar just like the Cretan gods. But God's word says the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Jesus is not an empty talker. He is not a deceiver. Jesus didn't just declare, I am the way and the truth and the life. He made the ultimate demonstration by his resurrection from the grave. He conquered sin and death. Our hope does not consist in talk, but in the power of God. God's universe making reality, sustaining life, creating power. It is this fact that moves Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is not hevel. You are standing on the rock, not on empty air. This is so, so important. As we talk about declare and demonstrate through the book of Titus, one of the things that can uh, trip you up is you begin to think that, again, it, it depends on us. It's all about us. And so um, you feel like your worth is at stake. That's not what's going on. Unlike the Cretans who beheld Zeus who would say one thing and then do another, we behold Christ who never lies. The labor of our lives is not in vain. It's not hevel. We're not earning anything. It's not because of anything we can say, we can declare, and not because of anything that we demonstrate, but it's because of Christ who never lies, because of Christ who has demonstrated the truth of the gospel that he declared over us. It's on the basis of the finished work of Jesus that we are able to live meaningful lives, saying true things and living in true ways to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just I want to pray for those who have come to the church and they're hurting. They're hurting because they've, they've been taught false things about you or they've, they've believed false things about you, God. Lord, you are for us and you pursue those who run from you, even a man like Paul. And God, I, I pray for those who have been hurt, Lord, by people in authority who misused that, whose character was low but authority was high. Oh God, protect us. Lord, help us to love our hurting brother, our hurting sister, God. Lord, we pray for our church that we would not be hypocrites. Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on Christ, that you would change us. Lord, that as we behold the beauty of Christ, that you would transform us to be like him, to declare the truth, to demonstrate the truth, knowing that you are the one who holds us together. It's by your work. It is not us, but Christ in us who does the work. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name.